I want to start uh, with the deathbed and the deathbed of Sir Richard Gresham, Thomas Gresham's father. Richard Gresham died in February 1549 and was buried in the parish church of St. Lawrence Jewry, near the Guildhall and right in the heart of the city of London. Now, this was a very fitting resting place for a man who'd forged a career that had taken him right to the very top of the urban hierarchy. Richard had been a mercer and a, a erstwhile governor of that brandest of London livery companies. And in this, which is a really wonderful map uh, of London by John Norden, is surrounded by the crest of the livery companies, and there's that of the mercers right at the top in prominent position. Richard Gresham had also scaled the height of London's government. He'd served as an alderman, and he'd served as sheriff, and finally, as the highest civic dignitary of all, he'd been Lord Mayor. And Richard's, the will of Richard's movable goods is in many ways very typical of its type. It represents the social and familial networks of a very rich, prominent citizen and merchant. It consists of a long string of legacies, to his family and his servants, and to his parish church, and to the poor of his parish. All very typical. But in the middle of this distribution of loot, there are a series of bequests that are really very striking to anyone who knows anything about Tudor politics. Gresham left a trove of rings, a very extensive one, to the most powerful individuals in the land. Recipients included my Lord Protector's Grace, that is, Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset, John Dudley, the Earl of Warwick, Sir Lord Rich, the Lord Chancellor, Sir Lord Paget, Great Master of the King's Household, Sir the Controller of the Household, the Secretaries of the Privy Council, Lord Chief Justices of England, and so on and so forth, and one ring to young Walter Mildmay, a clever Cambridge-educated lawyer who was right at the beginning of a stellar career in royal finance, and I mention Mildmay because we'll be returning to him somewhat later. This list of the beneficiaries of Richard Gresham's bounty is, in fact, a roll call of nearly all of the prominent figures in the government of the young King Edward VI. From the Lord Protector, the facto regent, who, of course, got the most expensive ring, uh, to the great officers of state, leading members of the judiciary, and the chief officers of the royal court. Even in death then, Sir Richard Gresham, this great citizen of London, thought it was worth his while to cultivate the political elite, to cultivate these personal contacts with the court. And the beneficiary of that goodwill that he was establishing was, of course, not me, <laughs> not going backwards, <laughs> Sir Thomas Gresham, his younger son. But if Richard Gresham had been acquainted with the royal court, Thomas Gresham could call himself a servant of the crown. His education suggests that this path may have been thought out for him quite early on. Before he was apprenticed as a mercer, Thomas, quite unusually, was sent to Cambridge, the tender age of 11, to Gonville Hall, and later to the Collège de Calvi at the University of Paris. And here he received the education and perhaps the contacts of both a scholar and a public servant. In this famous self-portrait, there's an example, of course, here on the wall, which he commissioned in 1544, when he was just 26. 
Um, Thomas is actually dressed in the black of courtly attire. And it's a very striking portrait because it's the first portrait we have of a merchant where, which is a full-length portrait. That was in contemporary portraiture, a pose, sorry, I need to get used to this, a pose usually reserved for royalty or for the very grandest of the nobility. And just to prove my point, here is a portrait from around about the same time of the very grandest nobleman of his day, Lord Henry Howard who, in a couple of years after this was painted, would be executed for treason for having over-mighty aspirations. Anyway, let's go back to Thomas for a moment. Thomas strikingly shunned the sort of civic career that his father had adopted. He completely ignored the cursus honorum of London government. He didn't serve as an alderman, and he didn't become Lord Mayor. Instead, Thomas served... Um, the three Tudor monarchs, Edward VI, Mary I, and famously Elizabeth I. He liaised assuredly between the royal courts of Brussels and London as their financial agent. Richard Gresham received his knighthood um, as elect uh, when he was made Lord Mayor. Thomas Gresham would be knighted when he became ambassador to the court at Brussels. And as an ambassador, he would actually be the sovereign representative of Elizabeth's authority. Queen Elizabeth I, of course, paid many, uh, many um, visits to Thomas's opulent homes. This wasn't one of them, but it is a wonderful image of the Queen surrounded by her courtiers, ladies-in-waiting and gentlemen. Elizabeth visited Thomas very famously, in particular, at his home in Ostley. Uh, there's a very famous story that many of you may know, that during one such visit, uh, the Queen, um, order, Thomas Gresham, built a wall in the middle of the night after Elizabeth had complained about the great size of his courtyard. Now, we don't know whether or not that's a myth, but, you know, it, it does sound quite like the sort of acerbic comments Elizabeth I was wont to give her subjects. And if Richard Gresham had courted the Edwardians, Thomas Gresham was an intimate, and I'd say a friend of the leading nobleman and statesman of his day. He dined with these people and he socialised with them. J.W. Bergen, Gresham's uh, great 19th century biographer, described his subject as a statesman as well as a merchant and the companion of princes and nobles. And one of the themes I want to explore today is whether or not those identities really could be synonymous in the 16th century. Could a statesman and a merchant be the same person? Now, Victorians like Bergen admired Thomas Gresham because he exemplified to them their view of how individuals made history. Gresham was one of those great men of the past whose personal brilliance and achievements had changed the world. Of course, this is a view of historical causation that has far from fallen out of fashion, in particular with our own political elite. But there's a lot of truth, of course, in that assessment of Gresham's uniqueness. As John Guy has shown in his really wonderful recent biography, um, it was Gresham's idiosyncratic economic brain, his unparalleled grasp of the European credit market, that made Sir Thomas indispensable as the financial agent of three successive monarchs. And, of course, the fact that we're here celebrating his life in this extraordinary institution bears witness to his unique vision. But the careers of Sir Thomas and that of his father before him, as this whole series is explored, are revelatory of the age in which he lived, the Tudor age. 
The services they provided to the crown and to the courtiers and the rewards they sought can tell us a lot about the changing nature of monarchy in our period. They can tell us about the shifting character of noble identity and the widening of the national political elite. Above all, by thinking about the Greshams, and I'm going to talk about Richard and Thomas in parallel in this lecture, we can build up a picture of the increasingly interdependent relationship of the royal court and of the city of London, and of the growing importance of London in the political life of the nation. But if the crown needed men like Gresham to negotiate the world of early modern finance and commerce, the Greshams courted the crown to cern their own somewhat idiosyncratic aspirations. It was, of course, though, as financial agents or bankers to Edward VI, Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth that Thomas Gresham is owed a central place in this period's political history. This is a place that's rarely found in textbooks. There are lots and lots of textbooks on 16th century uh, England and Britain. Um, but if you go to many of these and look up Thomas Gresham in the index, you very often don't find an entry or find very little about him. And this is a, a, a lacuna that needs remedying. And I discuss, I'll come back to the reasons for that, perhaps, at the end of the lecture. As John Guy has shown in his lecture, the most vital service Thomas offered his princes was, of course, as their banker, vitally negotiating the crown's debts on the Antwerp Bourse. But the first foot on the ladder to public service for both father and son, and the way they made themselves known to the political elite in the first place, actually derived from their primary occupation as mercers. Richard and Thomas Gresham were also members of the company of the Merchant Adventurers, which we heard about in the lecture by Ian Archer in this series, which company monopolised trade with Antwerp, the greatest centre for the production and exchange of goods in Europe. So both men were exceptionally well positioned to import things not available on the English market, goods that met the new needs of Renaissance monarchs. The most vital of these imports were supplies for war. Like other merchants, Richard Gresham had shipped arms and loaned money to Henry VIII uh, for his wars with France in the 1510s. And in recognition of these services, he was appointed Gentleman Usher Extraordinary, which is an honorific post, but a significant one at the royal court. One of the first imports Thomas provided for the crown would be of an identical nature. In June 1543, when Henry VIII was waging war in France and in Scotland, young Thomas Gresham, solicitor of the same, was seeking this out, was dispatched with a licence for gunpowder and saltpetre bought for your highness. Now, in the 16th century was an age where firearms were increasingly central to warfare. Gunpowder and saltpetre, or potassium nitrate, which is a component of gunpowder, were essential commodities, and they were almost entirely imported. Soon after Elizabeth I's succession, the immediate responsibilities of Thomas Gresham were twofold, to negotiate the crown's borrowing, but also to supply vast amounts of munitions and armour for Elizabeth's military engagements, again in France and in Scotland. So, if you read Gresham's accounts and invoices from the early 1560s, you'll find that they accord almost equal space to his credit deals and his arms purchasing. Describing a recent shipment of corsets, copper, firearms, gunpowder, mail shirts, and saltpeter, of course, Sir Thomas boasted 
this great shipping will astonish all the Queen's enemies and diverse others. I have to say, this is a very optimistic view of Elizabeth's clout in the early 1560s. I don't think anybody was particularly stunned by her military um, capacity then. But um, this, was, um, uh, th th this was a very, very central part of Gresham's role. But it wasn't simply as arms dealers that the Greshams became well known at court. Richard Gresham's closer personal integration with the very highest powers in the land seems to have occurred in the 1520s and in relation to a very different sort of purchase. In October 1520, we find him writing to Cardinal Wolsey, the greatest statesman in the land at the apogee of his power. Richard explained that he'd been measuring up rooms and promised to order hangings, which would be made and delivered at a sum of a thousand marks. Now, these hangings were tapestries for Wolsey's new palace at Hampton Court, tapestries on biblical themes. After the Cardinal's death, an inventory of his movable goods, it's a wonderful title, The Best Stuff, um, <laughs> includes many luxury items procured by Richard. Tapestries, but also bed covers in satin, damask and sarsenet, feather ticks or mattresses, and velvet and leather covered chairs. These services for Wolsey were the gateway for, um, for Richard Gresham to perform similar services for Henry VIII. And in 1528, Henry VIII commanded Richard Gresham to commission a bespoke sequence of tapestries on the theme of the life of King David. This was the largest and most important commission of this kind that Henry had made to date, reflecting the king's growing self-association with this Old Testament monarch. It gave who he associated greatly with King Henry as he assumed power over the English church. Now, this image here is not one of the David tapestries. We don't have those, but this was recently discovered and is another similar tapestry that Henry commissioned in the mid-1530s of the life of St. Paul. Uh, it's a book burning, and again, um, it's a tapestry that really vividly reflects Henry VIII's sense of his ecclesiastical authority. So you can see how these decorative items had very strong and strident political themes. This service, then, a sort of luxury personal shopper, was inherited by Thomas too, even when he occupied grander roles as royal banker and ambassador. Keen to impress the young Edward VI with a striking gift, Thomas Gresham presented him with a pair of long Spanish silk stockings. This was a commodity so rare in mid-Tudor England that John Stowe thought the present worthy of mention in his great Chronicle of London. And he noted that King Henry VIII did only wear cloth hose or hose of taffeta, nowhere near as good. And even during the most important years of his public career, the early 1560s, Gresham's correspondence with Elizabeth I's government, which enshrine all these details of his credit transactions and arms purchasing, are also peppered with information about luxury imports, <coughs> silk stockings and headpieces, buttons, a Turkish horse, pictures, and a jeweled sword, the latter of which was very difficult to procure. Now, tapestries, stockings, and jewels all seem to be very frivolous purchases when we compare them with the munitions that were also being imported. But of course, the Tudors viewed both arms and luxury goods as essential items to the exercise of power. In 15th and 16th century Europe, princely rulers, who were concerned to centralise their royal authority over their greater subjects, 
placed new and very conscious emphasis on the projection of power through visual and material means at their increasingly large and increasingly magnificent royal courts. In the late 15th century treatise on the governance of England by the lawyer Sir John Fortescue, Fortescue, justifying royal expenditure, famously explained, it is necessary that the king has such treasure that he may make new buildings when he wants to for his pleasure and magnificence. He may buy himself rich clothes and rich furs, jewels and ornaments convenient to his estate royal. Often he will buy rich hangings and apparel for his houses and incur other such noble costs as befits his royal majesty. If a king did not do so, he would live not like his estate, but rather in misery and more in subjection than does a private person. This was a theme the Tudors certainly took to heart. Now, we don't have many images of the interiors of your courts in this period, but those that we do have indicate just how luxuriously they were furnished, especially with textiles. This image here is of Elizabeth I receiving Dutch emissaries, um, and it's very uh, interesting for the, um, well, first of all, the queen and her ladies-in-waiting are beautifully dressed and in glorious clothing, and the ladies-in-waiting are sitting in what appears to be cushions on the floor. Uh, but note that the walls seem to be hung with tapestries that are very tightly hung. And um, this very interesting painting too, which is painted in 1604, uh, celebrating a peace treaty between England and Spain in 1604. It's very interesting for lots of, of reasons. Um, but I want to draw your attention, of course, to the uh, central image of the council table, which is covered in a rich Turkish carpet. And again, to the tapestries which line the walls. Tapestries were perhaps the greatest expression of magnificence of all. Because of the expensive labour involved in producing these incredibly intricate pieces, uh, they were the single most expensive movable item of the court, and they cost far more than the portraits and the furniture that we might think were the more choice artefacts. The scenes from the life of King David, bought by Richard Gresham for Henry VIII, cost over £1,500. That was roughly the equivalent cost of a contemporary warship, uh, or around £1.5 million in today's money. Or for a different context, the median nobleman's income in the 1530s was just over £900 per annum. The annual salary Henry VIII paid to Hans Holbein, the great court painter, was £30 per annum. So these were enormously <laughs> expensive items. The expenditure of Tudor monarchs on these luxury items represents, though, more than just the growing ostentation of courtly display. It also indicates other changed features of the changing nature of the early modern English court and its role in national life. The first is simply the spectacular growth in the size of the physical footprint of the court, that is, the enormous increase in the number and size of royal palaces in the first half of the 16th century. This, of course, shaped the demand for all these luxury furnishings that the men like the Russians had to provide. This phenomenon is almost entirely the result of the maniacal construction and spending of Henry VIII, who was quite simply the greatest royal builder of palaces of any monarch in these isles of any age. 
He left around 70 houses and palaces to his son, Edward VI. These estimates are taken from the great architectural historian, Simon Furley. And over half of these were new acquisitions. And he spent around a million pounds in his own money on domestic buildings. Let's remember that the median nobleman's salary uh, per year was between 900 and 1,000 pounds. The most important of Henry VIII's new palaces would be uh, Whitehall Palace. The Whitehall Palace was originally York Place, the palace of the Bishop of Bishops of York, the London residence, um, and this was taken from the fallen Cardinal Wolsey in 1529 and entirely remodelled by Henry VIII to a gargantuan palace renamed Whitehall Palace to the tune of over £43,000. Now, virtually nothing of Whitehall Palace apart from Banqueting House exists today, but at its greatest extent, it had over a thousand rooms, vast parkland, and an enormous suite of leisure facilities, tennis court, a bowling green, cockpit tilt yard, and a great public auditorium for sermons. Not only were royal palaces more numerous and furnished on a grander scale than ever before, their architecture also became more complex, their internal architecture too. In the early 16th century, the ceremonial and public rooms of the royal palaces, which are much more accessible, strikingly accessible to the general public, were divided from the inner apartments, where monarchs and consorts could live more privately. These were called the privy chamber or the privy lodgings. These inner privy rooms became the real hub of political life. Access to the monarch was closely monitored and refined to those privileged courtiers and statesmen who were allowed past the threshold and had the prince's ear. They could distribute royal patronage. For all of their wealth and brilliance, both Sir Richard and Sir Thomas Gresham had to engage in the power play of court politics to enjoy any sort of public role. Thomas Gresham's most important patron was this man, John Dudley, Duke of Northumberland, and he was responsible for launching Sir Gosh Thomas Gresham's public career. Now, you may remember Sir John, John Dudley was um, one of the recipients of a ring in Richard Gresham's will while he was still Earl of Warwick. In August 1549, Thomas Gresham hosted John Dudley at Intwood Family Manor in Norfolk at an absolutely extraordinary moment in English history. At this point, the commons of East Anglia, led by the charismatic yeoman Robert Kett, had risen up and taken hold of Norwich, and Dudley was en route to suppress what was being described as a great rebellion, which really seemed to threaten the whole social order. Now, we have absolutely no idea what passed between Thomas Gresham and Dudley at this pivotal moment in English history, but the meeting was a turning point in the careers of both men. Dudley achieved a bloody victory over the rebels and um, was able to oust his political rivals and become Lord President of the Royal Council, elevated to the uh, highest peerage, the Duke of Northumberland. With Dudley's ascendancy, Gresham's star rose too. It was through your preference, he wrote to Northumberland, that he was appointed as royal agent at Antwerp. Fortune's wheel famously turned very quickly at the Tudor court, and on the death of the young Edward VI, Gresham's bright prospects were suddenly very bleak. 
the Duke of Northumberland, his great patron, had attempted to follow the wishes of the dying king by placing Edward's Protestant cousin, who happened to be his own daughter-in-law, uh, Lady Jane Grey, on the throne. Riding a wave of public support, Mary Tudor, Henry VIII's oldest child, swept to power, deposing Jane and executing Northumberland. And with the fall of Northumberland came a great purge of the Duke's clients and kin. Gresham was removed from office. And yet, extraordinarily, he suffered only a very temporary fall from grace. Contacts at court seem to have played an essential part in the recovery of his career. He later wrote that a gentleman, Sir John Lee, a favourite of the Queen, had made a personal intervention with his mistress to restore Gresham to favour. And he was reappointed as, re as Mary's financial agent a mere four months after his original form. Under Elizabeth Tudor, the Northumberland group were in favour again at court, and so, of course, was Gresham. He enjoyed the patronage of the most important courtiers and statesmen of the day, all of whom had been associated with the government of Edward VI. Sir William Cecil, later Lord Burley, had been Secretary of State in the Northumberland, okay. and Lord Robert Dudley, Northumberland's son, um, Elizabeth's greatest favourite and leading courtier, was ennobled as the Earl of Leicester in 1564, were his patrons, his major patrons. The account books of Robert Dudley, which gives an amazing insight into the daily life and material world of a Tudor aristocrat, suggest a relationship with Thomas Gresham that I think we can describe as a friendship. Dudley pays for boat hire, for transport along the Thames to sup with Master Gresham and sent gifts of venison from his country estate to both Gresham and to William Chesham, another Mercer and prominent London citizen. A gift of game was a great symbolic gift in this period. To even have a deer park was a sign of great wealth um, and preeminence. When Thomas Gresham acquired Osterley Park, his Middlesex country house, Dudley helped him stock his own prized deer park with game from his own estates. And when Gresham's crippling debts to the Crown were revealed in an audit of his accounts in 1574-5, it was Cecil and Dudley who personally intervened with Elizabeth to have them written off. The increasing incise in and sophistication of royal palaces and the intrigues that embroiled the court occurred alongside another very important change in political life. The court became a much more centralised institution of power and almost perpetually located in the southeast of England. And this had great implications for the centrality of London and its economy to national life. Medieval kings had lived itinerant lives, almost perpetually, perpetually travelling around their domains. But in what's another distinct innovation of the early 16th century, the mobility of Henry VIII and his children was drastically reduced to a much smaller area of the kingdom. Elizabeth I spent most of the year at royal residences of Greenwich, Richmond, Hampton Court, and especially the principal seat of the court, that gargantuan palace at Whitehall. In the summer months, Elizabeth frequently went on progress, taking the court into the provinces and descending on the houses of the gentry and nobility and demanding their hospitality. As we recall, she visited Osterley, Gresham's great country house, around eight times during his lifetime. 
Uh, and some historians have traditionally described Elizabeth's progresses to the country as sort of instruments of power. When the queen showed herself to her subjects, they uh, bowed down before her uh, and were obedient to her. It was a way that she cemented her authority. But it's very important to remember that not only were these progresses of pretty short duration, they had an extremely limited geographical range. Elizabeth didn't go more than 40 miles outside of the capital. She never went to the north. She never visited the southwest. She never visited Wales. And she certainly didn't visit Ireland, the other realms that she ruled as queen. And for most of the year, Queen Anne Court were located in the Thames Valley, residing in and around London. Osterley Park was so attractive to visit because of its location in Middlesex, which was a comfortable distance between Whitehall and Elizabeth's favourite summer palace, Nonsuch, in Surrey. This rapid centering of the royal court in the southeast had some other very important effects on national politics. If the court wasn't travelling extensively to the provinces, the elites of the realm certainly were travelling to the courts and in ever-increasing numbers. Now, both Henry VII and Henry VIII had deliberately sought to cement their authority in the localities by developing and cementing direct relationships with the royal gentry that were centred on the court. The greater nobility, too, were increasingly leaving their patrimonial estates to spend at least part of the year in attendance on the monarch. Influence at court brought the fruits of patronage leases, lands and offices uh, that allowed the elite to sustain their wealth and local influence. And of course, the social prestige of the gentry and the nobility was really vital to their standing in society, increasingly derived from their ability to both afford but also to project the sort of cultural lifestyle associated with the royal court, its fashions, its music and its literary tastes. Nobles were also drawn to London and its suburbs too, for the combined attractions of business and of pleasure. The central law courts, the 16th century was an incredibly litigious age, and parliaments were of course located at Westminster, which was just a short distance from Whitehall Palace. And the gentry were also attracted by the cultural delights of the city and its environs. We've heard from Stephen Alford, of course, about the opportunities for shopping at Gresham's own royal exchange to the era of the public theatres at Southwark and at Blackfriars. And people flocked even to the religious experiences that London had to offer. Public sermons at the preaching place at Whitehall were dramatic spectacles which could draw in audiences of around 5,000 people. Uh, it's worth remembering that the Globe Theatre would only get in an audience of around 3,000, so these could be enormous events. This is a famous, very famous image of the great preacher of the Edwardian. Is this working? Uh, the great preacher of Edward VI's reign, uh, Hugh Latimer, preaching um, at the Royal Court. Master Latimer from Fox's Acts and Monuments, Fox's Book of Martyrs. So great were the attractions of London to the political elites that the Crown began to issue from 1596 a series of completely useless proclamations urging the nobles to retreat to the country and return to their proper business as ruler of the localities. There's a series of these proclamations in the early 17th century that seemed to have no effect at all. The recourse of the nobility and gentry to Westminster, its city and its environs, also had a very significant impact on the development of London itself, 
particularly perhaps for its merchants. Now, historians quibble about the extent to which the enormous growth of London's population in the 16th century was stimulated by the centering of the royal court in the southeast and at Whitehall. But there's no doubt that the luxury and consumption of the court had a significant impact on the economy of the city of London and of Westminster, and perhaps particularly on the prosperity of those in the business of luxury imports. Ian Archer's calculations suggest that the Elizabethan court, which numbered around 600 to 700 individuals, consumed perhaps up to 5% of the total wine drunk in London, whose total population was 125,000 in the period. Of greater relevance for mercers such as the Greshams were the demands of, royal, of the royal wardrobe for textiles, not only for furnishing the rooms of palaces, but for dressing the monarch, courtiers and their retinues, and also, of course, for providing the astonishing quantities of cloth required for public ceremony. Coronations and funerals, indeed, were wonderfully lucrative opportunities for London's mercers, drapers and tailors. At Henry VIII's funeral, London supplied around 19 miles, just under, of black cloth. And for the coronation of Elizabeth, more happily, well, it depends on your view of Henry VIII, I suppose, but for the coronation of Elizabeth I, miles of scarlet and red cloth, silk and cloth of gold, were supplied by stores. And much of this was also imported by that mercer, William Chesham. We've already seen was one of Robert Dudley's cronies, recipients of his venison. The presence of the nobility in London also had a considerable physical impact on physical impact on the built environment too. While many nobles had lodgings at royal palaces and others rented uh, space in, in and around London, others built their own grand urban homes. A series of aristocrats' houses were erected on the Strand and on Fleet Street between Whitehall Palace, the pointer is not working, I'm very sorry, but between Whitehall Palace to the left and the city to the right. And just on this map may be visible Leicester House right in the corner and the houses, uh, other aristocratic houses along the Thames. The largest Elizabethan constructions were, unsurprisingly, Cecil House, William Cecil's rude new cottage, as he described it, which was an enormous mansion, of course, with a state-of-the-art tennis court, bowling alley and orchard, and also Leicester House, Robert Dudley's own grand Thameside dwelling. And again, Gresham was pressed into service to find luxury furnishings for the residences of his noble patrons, both in London and in the provinces. For Robert Dudley, he sourced gold canvas and stockings again. For Cecil, he bought pillars of marble, velvet and leather chairs, clocks, candlesticks, and tapestry. In this close-built environment, the nobility mingled with the ordinary London population. The nobles residing in the great new palaces of Westminster were situated next to shops and taverns, the premises of the tailors, bakers, and shoemakers, whose livelihoods depended on the presence of fashionable society. The corollary of this explosion of conspicuous consumption, though, was a less glamorous but very familiar tale, aristocratic debt. Just as rich merchants facilitated the luxury shopping habits of the courtly elite, they provided the means to do so by giving credit for that spending. And again here, the Greshams and their like played a very important role. 
So Richard Gresham had a reputation as a really fearsome moneylender, relentless in the pursuit of his debts. Cardinal Wolsey, Thomas Cranmer, and Thomas Cromwell, the great figures of the Henrician age, all owed Richard money. In 1535, Sir Francis Bigard, a gentleman from Yorkshire, wrote to Thomas Cromwell, I dare not come to London for fear of Master Gresham. Now, I don't think Bigard was a timorous man, as he was later executed for treason, so I think we have to assume that Richard Gresham's debt-collecting practices were really pretty terrifying. And if, again, we look to that wonderful resource, the account books of Lord Robert Dudley, we can find the Queen's favourite owed debts to a cluster of London merchants. Five pounds to Bannister Merchant. One hundred pounds to Thomas Blunt Merchant. Forty pounds to Thomas Gresham. In the early 1560s, Gresham also became embroiled in the sorry financial affairs of William Cecil's older son, Thomas, who stayed with him in Antwerp while supposedly pursuing an educational tour of the continent. Uh, William Cecil uh, was very um, despairing of his eldest son's intellectual and moral capabilities uh, and always complaining about him. But apparently during this continental educational tour, he racked up bills for being rash in expenses, careless in his apparel, and an unfortunate lover of dice and cards without actually learning very much. Thomas Gresham provided um, him, uh, his son with money and, of course, invoiced William Cecil for that money. So London merchants, with their spectacular liquid wealth, were this source of credit to aspirants but cash poor nobles. And this practice of lending to the aristocracy was extremely widespread, particularly when the laws against usury were relaxed in 1571. In 1601, when the glamorous but ill-counselled Earl of Essex was executed for treason... Oh, sorry, that's not... Was executed for treason, it was discovered that he owed thousands of pounds to London merchants and the Chamber of the City. And it was actually his inability to pay his creditors that was one of the causes that propelled him into rebellion. He tried to raise the City of London to go to the court at Whitehall and take it over. Uh, they didn't go with him, and um, his end was a very sorry one. So the City plutocracy could clearly make much business out of their transactions with the landed elites. But did they hope to join its ranks? And was this even possible? This is raising the very vexatious question of social mobility, a question which historians have uh, liked to conduct very heated debates about for this period. Historians in the late 20th century, led by the late Lawrence Stone, were very keen to deny the openness of England's landed elite in this period. They emphasised the extent to which the wealthy commercial classes were prohibited from adopting gentry status or becoming courtiers and gentlemen themselves. And if we turn to social theorists of the period, um, we do find very distinct definitions of the aristocracy and gentry as an honour community defined by lineage and wealth generated from ownership of land and as a social class completely divided from that of the burgesses and townsmen who made their money from commerce. Gentlemen be those whom their race or blood make noble and known, wrote the Elizabethan minister William Harrison in his very famous description of England. Later in the 17th century, Edward Chamberlain denounced those nobles who put their sons into apprenticeships as merchants as a perfect servitude, bearing the hallmarks of slavery. Um, and this uh, image here is slightly later than our period, but 
It's an image of what became a very popular literary genre in the early 17th century, handbooks on uh, how to comport yourself as a gentleman and what a gentleman's lifestyle should be, uh, defined by particular virtues, particular dress, having a heraldic device, a coat of arms, uh, and recreations, which are all those of the country of hawking and rural pursuits, and very much nothing to do with the world of the city or the world of commerce. And yet, of course, as Thomas Gresham's career demonstrates starkly, that distinction between aristocratic and bourgeois culture in later Tudor England was, in fact, of course, extremely permeable. The famous portrait of Thomas Gresham, which is on the wall here too, um, uh, he sits before us uh, wearing the silks and velvets of noble dress. And what we know of Gresham's taste in furnishings, his architectural preferences, these are hardly distinct from those of many nobles. Gresham College with the grasshopper. Um, of course, Richard and Thomas Gresham were both inordinately fond of this heraldic device of the grasshopper. It featured prominently in the buildings they built, and it also featured very prominently in the furnishings of their houses, embellishing their carpets and the hangings of their beds. Thomas's grandest London residence, Gresham House, was located on Bishopsgate in the city and not on the Strand, like the aristocratic palaces. But it was an imposing construction of brick and timber, built to impress, with Italianate lodgers, galleries, and a large walled garden. And of course, he was not the only merchant to have such an impressive residence, which would have looked rather similar to those of the nobility. Gresham House was deemed impressive enough to host visiting dignitaries when lodgings at court were in short supply. And of course, Osterley Park, Gresham's modish country seat in Middlesex, was notorious in his own age for its magnificence. A contemporary guide to famous English landmarks in Middlesex singled it out for its extraordinary 600 acres of parkland, which were wooded and garnished with fair ponds containing fish and fowl and swans and very fair herons. Now, scholars of this period tend to argue that the, and assume, really, that the court and the aristocracy set fashionable taste. They set the taste in building, clothing, and furnishing, and these fashions then trickled down to the rest of society. But the merchants and diplomats, men like Gresham, who saw at first hand the latest architectural and decorative fashions of the uh, continents, must actually have been responsible themselves for directing and shaping noble taste. The relationship between courtly and bourgeois culture must have existed in some kind of dynamic. It was clearly then possible for merchants to achieve recognition as gentlemen, even shape gentry culture, however much contemporary commentators might chunter. In his tract, The Blazon of Gentry, the herald John Fern insisted that merchants should never normally be considered nobles unless there concurs some notable collateral desert to his country. This rise in status could be achieved and justified through two essential routes, the holding of public office and the accumulation of property in land. And certainly, it was in their quest to build up their landed estates that we can discern the clearest and most consistent ambitions of Richard and Thomas Gresham. Along with large swathes of the aristocracy, the richest of the city elite seized the opportunity to buy up ecclesiastical property, which was being sold off by the crown in vast quantities from the 1530s onwards in the aftermath of the dissolution of the monasteries. 
Now, the process, in, in general accounts of the period, this process of the transfer of monastic lands to lay hands is usually described as a sort of land grab by the gentry and nobility. But the records of the court of augmentations, um, the court um, in which these transactions were conducted from the 1530s and 1540s, also name a host of the wealthiest of London citizens doing the same thing. John Gresham Mercer, Richard's brother, is there. Roland Hill Mercer, another Lord Mayor, is there. Thomas Alsop, a very rich grocer, all buying up property of former religious houses. Richard Gresham was perhaps the most acquisitive of all, devouring lands and leases on former ecclesiastical land in various counties. Most famously, after protracted negotiations, he acquired Fountain's Abbey in Yorkshire, a very famous romantic ruin uh, remembers today, uh, which he immediately stripped of its most saleable commodities, its lead and its bells. Now, in doing this, um, by putting their liquid capital into land, merchants were... In perhaps in, to some extent, avoiding paying taxation on, on, this, on their liquid wealth. And taxation was particularly heavy um, in the wars of Edward the, Henry VIII and Edward VI. But there were also, some of them, building up their landed estates and perhaps clearing the path that would lead men through the social ranks from merchant to landed gentleman. Even more explicitly than his father, Thomas Gresham viewed the expansion of this landed estate as the proper reward for all of his travails as the Crown's financial agent. And in Edward and Mary, this relationship progressed exactly as he had hoped, with each monarch rewarding him handsomely with lucrative lands and leases. By the time of Elizabeth's accession, Gresham's major income derived from his estates, rather than the profits of trade and exchange, a resource that Thomas viewed as the proper reward of his service. As he wrote to Elizabeth, her brother Edward VI had given him rich lands in East Anglia on his deathbed so that I should know that I served a king. And yet, for all that his fame is linked with that of Elizabeth I, it was his final mistress who most frustrated Gresham's expectation of landed rewards. Instead, Elizabeth sought to reduce Gresham's salary as an ambassador, and this provoked a really remarkable letter of outraged complaint. Gresham told the Queen that her brother and sister had given him, between them in reward of my service, £300 in land a year, while she was quibbling with his allowance. I have done your highness other manner of service, of greater importance and greater mass and charge than he had to either of her siblings. In consideration whereof, I trust that your majesty will be no less beneficial unto me, for so your majesty did promise me when I took this great charge upon me. Now, people did not write like this to Elizabeth I. This is not the emollient, place-seeking language of the Silverton courtier. And Elizabeth simply didn't receive letters like this. Many one, and certainly not, jumped up merchants. And yet it's very difficult not to sympathise with Gresham, that the service he performed for Elizabeth was hardly rewarded as he hoped. This brings me to the final part of what I have to say, where I very briefly reassess the peculiar character of Gresham's career as a servant of the crown. It's not possible to deny that his life was characterised by service of notable collateral desert to Queen and Commonwealth that we've seen was expected of someone making a leap between social classes, between merchant to member of the governing order. And the 1560s, the first decade of Elizabeth's reign, were the pinnacle of Thomas Gresham's public achievements. He presided over the virtual expunging of the Crown's foreign debts. 
His advice drove the great reminting of the coinage in the 1560s, which brought stability to the Elizabethan economy after years of debasement by the Queen's predecessors. And Gresham played an unsung but vital role in foreign policy too. Not so much during his brief stint as ambassador at the court of the Regent of the Netherlands, but actually as a purveyor of foreign news and intelligence back to the government at Whitehall. The reams of newsletters and foreign information that Gresham and his huge network of agents set back to the Elizabethan court, a very exciting read. Um, amidst the state of the Queen's Turkish horse or the location of her stockings, are really revelatory accounts of the growing political crisis in the Netherlands, the extraordinary eruption of religious violence and iconoclasm that marked the onset of the Dutch revolt. And it's hard to argue that without Gresham's public service, the Elizabethan age would have seemed very different indeed. Those textbooks would have had a different narrative to tell. And yet, the extraordinary exchange with Elizabeth over land prompts consideration on Gresham's impact on politics outside of the financial services he provided for the crown. We recall that Burgum described Gresham as a statesman. The Tudor age did, of course, see the flourishing of careers of individuals from non-noble backgrounds who rose to the very highest peaks of royal service. Thomas Cromwell, whom the eighth great minister, was the son of a Putney blacksmith. William Cecil, ennobled and enriched by Elizabeth to become a great regional magnate, was descended from a relatively humble gentry family in Lincolnshire. Closest to Gresham's own background was Sir Walter Mildmay, whose ancestors were merchants and who rose in the Royal Financial Administration to become a leading Privy Councillor, Chancellor of the Exchequer and spokesman of the Crown in Parliament. Now, my students uh, studying this period's religion and its politics will all, um, I hope, have read these names in textbook accounts of the period. But as I've said earlier, they won't stumble readily across the name of Thomas Gresham. Because for all the financial and economic services Gresham performed for the Tudor monarchs, for all his social relations with key members of the regime, and his cultivation of the life of a propertied aristocrat, he remained an outlier and not at the very centre of politics. Unlike that socially mobile clique of Tudor grandees I've just described, Gresham did not become one of Elizabeth's advisers. He was never sworn a member of the Privy Council. His appointment as ambassador was brief and he was soon replaced by a civil lawyer, a more conventional choice of ambassador perhaps. Nor, after his retirement from Antwerp, was he given an elevated office in the Royal Financial Administration like that of Mildmay. And despite his modish lifestyle, he was in no formal sense a courtier with an office in the royal household. The major political service Elizabeth required of Gresham in the final years of his life was to act as the jailer for her cousin, Lady Mary Grey, who was placed into custody for marrying without the Queen's permission. Now, this was a horrible task, which brought great personal grief and distress to Thomas Gresham and his wife. And if he aspired to the lifestyle of a gentleman, Gresham seems very distinctively to have avoided the sort of wider service to the state that the Tudor monarchs expected of the gentry and nobility. He urged William Cecil to help him avoid being chosen as a sheriff. He doesn't seem to have sought election as an MP, unlike a large proportion of gentlemen and royal servants. This sort of mirrors his shunning of formal administrative office in London, where, we recall, he strikingly didn't become a sheriff, an alderman, or lord mayor. 
And the one documented instance that Gresham did intervene in Elizabethan politics, other than in financial affairs, occurred in the very first years of the Queen's reign, when he seems to have encouraged the Queen's marriage with the Archduke Charles of Austria. But Elizabeth took counsel on this, the most controversial and sensitive of all high political matters of her reign, only from those trusted advisers, and absolutely only when she solicited her opinion. Gresham was not one of those men. For all his importance to the court, he was not a favourite, or even a statesman, I think, in any formal sense. Here lies the reason, I think, why these standard textbooks' accounts on 16th century politics have unfairly neglected him. And herein lies also a lot of his interests. In many sense, Gresham was, as the Victorians applauded, great in his individuality. Thank you.